I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are podcasting with porpoise. (laughs) Plus a porpoise tale. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Today's episode is all about porpoises. Yay! Yay! Now, longtime listeners may know that two years ago, in fact, back oh, in those young, young days of episode eight of our podcast, we were speaking with one of our friends from the Porpoise Conservation Society, and we went pretty deep into specifically vaquitas and kind of porpoise research, not only related to vaquitas, but also related to the other work that the Porpoise Conservation Society is doing uh, and supporting. But listening back to some of our our past episodes, including that one, we realized what we didn't do in that episode was a sort of surface introduction to all seven porpoise species. So that is what we're doing today. So if you want to go really, really deep and do a deep dive of porpoises, you can actually go back and listen to our episode eight. And if you are relatively new, as I think most people are, because porpoises although an incredibly abundant group of cetaceans are not a very well-studied or super well-Instagrammed, I'll put it that way, <laughs> group of cetaceans. Um, if you would like a sort of amuse-bouche, as it were, a little introduction to sort of what is known of all seven porpoise species, this is the episode for you. General facts. Porpoise. There are seven species of porpoise, and they are found all over the world, including some rivers in Asia. Um, They eat small fish, crustaceans, and cephalopods, squids, octopuses, and cuttlefish. And their threats are pretty general. Uh, Pollution and bycatch are the big, big ones for them. So porpoises are often just sort of considered like small dolphins, but they're actually quite a lot there's quite a few more differences between them and dolphins other than being small. They have a much more triangular rather than sort of sickle shaped dorsal fin. Um, They have spade shaped teeth, which is the big um, like biological distinction. They have a less pronounced beak, more of like a rounded snout or rostrum. They're on average way less acrobatic. And as far as we know, they are not as social and they don't form large groups or the same close social bonds that dolphins do. Much smaller groups, and who knows about the bonds of them, which will be sort of a running theme mm-hmm. when it comes to... Oh yeah, that's the other difference. Less well studied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By a lot. I mean, dolphin for dolphin, porpoise for porpoise, there are dolphin species out there, as we've spoken about on the podcast before, that are also not well studied. But if you were to take... If you were, so obviously there's only seven species of porpoise and 30 some odd species of dolphin. If you were to average all of that out in terms of the sum total knowledge that we have about dolphins uh-huh. compared to the sum total knowledge that we have about porpoises, even accounting for the discrepancies in numbers of species, mm. it is like not on the same graph. No, <laughs> no it's at not all. at all. Oh boy. At all. Uh, But we'll start with an introduction to the porpoise species that we do know the most about, and that is the harbor porpoise. Uh, Now, we have spoken about harbor porpoises on the podcast a couple of times before, and chances are, if you, listener, uh, can picture a porpoise in your mind, you will very likely be picturing a harbor porpoise. They are small. That'll be also a common trend. Uh, the maximum length of a male is about 1.8 meters. Females are a teeny tiny bit bigger at 1.9 meters long. Their weight is between 60 and 75 kilograms or so. And they are gray. Just gray. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of distinctive visual when it comes to harp porpoises. They are, at least by the IUCN standard, considered to be a species of least concern, and they are found 
all over the place. In fact, they are the most widespread porpoise species. They are found in coastal waters of the subarctic, as well as the temperate waters of the North Atlantic and North Pacific. And they also can be found off the northwest coast of Africa. So really, kind of all over the place where it's not too hot or too cold. Uh, they do frequently visit shallow bays, estuaries, or harbors, <gasps> that's where they get their names, <laughs> that are less than 200 meters in depth. And they have been known to occasionally swim up rivers, but they would not spend any significant amount of time there. Uh, most of the major sightings of harbor porpoises occur within 10 kilometers of land, so you are definitely in coastal waters. And although there is some evidence of a north-south migration, most people believe that most harbor porpoise populations have preferred habitat that is pretty large, but they kind of stick to a broad area. Now, a sort of fun random fact about harbor porpoises is that even though they are not particularly acrobatic, not particularly sort of like a sexy species to study, because of their wide distribution, and the fact that there are so many of them, they are actually the most commonly spotted cetacean in the world, even though most people don't write home about it. <laughs> and that is the harbor porpoise. So moving on to the doll's porpoise, they're another one that's found off the coast of BC. They are black and white and almost always, if you don't know what you're looking at, everyone thinks it's a baby killer whale because they're black and white. They're their coloration patterns look absolutely nothing like a killer whale. <laughs> they have a little bit of white on their super triangular dorsal fin and then white on their bottom. Kind of like if you had just a short apron, you know, just like not the top part of the apron, but it's the bottom part of the apron. <laughs> that's, that's kind of where that is. <laughs> um, and that's really about it. And then the rest of them are black. Um, they're a little bit chonky, and but they go real fast um mm -hmm. so they are about 2.2 to 2.4 meters and weigh about 200 kilograms iucn again with some as least concern they live in the north pacific ocean and adjacent seas with from southern california and southern japan all the way up to the bering sea in alaska uh they're oceanic cold water porpoises and like deep coastal and offshore waters um, so we see, we do see them off of BC, but less often than we do harbor porpoises and, uh, out further offshore than you would see harbor porpoises. Um, as I said before, they're very, very active and incredibly fast. They can reach swimming speeds of 34 miles per hour, which is 54 kilometers per hour, which is ridiculous. Okay. Next up is the Burmeister's porpoise. The Burmeister's porpoise are... Mostly gray in color, a little bit of a lighter shade underneath. They have a very small dorsal fin and a very rounded snout. Um, they look kind of similar to Vaquita, uh, if, you, if you're more familiar with those. But they are larger. They are about uh, 1.8 to 2 meters long. They are about 85 kilograms in weight. Uh, they are listed as near-threatened by the IUCN, uh, and this is mainly due to being um, caught as bycatch and also targeted for hunting for both bait and human consumption. Burmeister's porpoises are found in South America from the north, uh, north Peru's Pacific coast all the way to the southern Brazil's Atlantic coast. Um, but they're not sighted very frequently or um, all the way along, so it's hard to say whether their range is continuous all the way around South America or fragmented. They are thought to be more common in the Pacific waters, um, and it seems that they prefer cold, shallow waters and estuaries and then move closer to shore at night. Um, a fun fact about them is that they hardly disturb the water at all when they surface to breathe. So as such, it's really hard to see these porpoises in choppy waters because their dorsal fins are so small and they barely come above the surface. So you can really only see them in calm seas uh, in order to study them, which might explain why we know so little about them. Now, prepare for a bit of a downer because anytime that we do talk about porpoises, uh, we have to acknowledge the vaquita in the room, which is the vaquita. So <laughs> chances are listeners are very familiar with vaquitas and the plight of this small, very, 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 very endangered species. 
And Andrew doesn't even seem like an appropriate word no. <laughs> mm-hmm. to describe them anymore. Functionally um, extinct, almost. Basically. But maybe not. <laughs> so, um, the vaquita is the smallest cetacean, and obviously smallest porpoise as well. It is primarily gray with darker fins, both their pectoral flippers as well as their dorsal fin and their fluke are a little bit darker gray. And they have sort of some, a very, very cute, they're very cute. It just is so sad. Oh, they have very cute sort of almost looks like eyeliner circle mm-hmm. around their eyes and around kind of their outlining the their, their very blunt rostrum kind of going up to the surface of their head. So they're a very, very sweet looking mm-hmm. species. Very, very small between 1.4 and 1.5 meters long and about 50 kilograms or so. And when we say critically endangered as listed by IUCN, what we actually mean is that there are probably nine to 15 of them left. Yeah. That is devastating. <laughs> um, the reason for this is that vaquitas only live in one small area in the north of the Gulf of California, or the Sea of Cortez, off the coast of Mexico. The area that they call home is just over 22 square kilometers, which is nothing <laughs> in the ocean. It is so small. And they prefer this shallow water along the coastline and the shore, uh, which puts them in extreme danger for the illegal fishing nets that are used to catch another endangered species, the totoaba fish. Uh, The totoaba fish is particularly sought after for um, traditional medicine use in Asia, and the illegal fishing of the totoaba is driving both the fish and the vaquita as a bycatch product to probably certain extinction. So we don't have a fun fact to share about the vaquita because talking about them is not fun, but it is really important. (laughs) And one of the, I don't know that hopeful is the right word to use for it, but an important update that has just happened in within the last month, actually, around vaquitas is there were some reports over the summer that the country of Mexico had stopped enforcing the protections that they had put in place to try and, I mean, obviously enforcing illegal fishing is very hard to do, Um, but the Mexican government had been working on that along with huge numbers of, of researchers and supporters from all over the world for the past number of years. And then there were reports this summer that the government of Mexico had stopped enforcing that and it had kind of become just whatever <laughs> there's you know just like we can't do this anymore i don't know what the reasons are obviously i don't i don't speak directly to anyone in the government of mexico um but these reports made their way to the united states mexico canada agreement which is a trade a trade agreement between the three countries in north america and specifically that trade agreement's commission for environmental cooperation and at the end of the summer the commission filed official allegations against the government of Mexico about their failure to enforce these protections for the endangered vaquita. So Mexico, the country, now has 60 days to respond to these allegations. And at that point, the commission will then decide whether they want to conduct a full investigation into the issue, um, whether that's warranted. And if that is conducted and they are able to prove that Mexico, in fact, has failed to enforce these protections under U.S. law, um, Mexico will be hit with um, enforcement actions and ultimately trade sanctions. So, I mean, none of that's good. Yeah. And also it's long. Yeah. It's a very long process. And there could, I mean, the could literally be nine or less mm-hmm. of these animals left. Um, but the one hopeful thing that we do want to leave you with is that research that was published just under a year ago, so November of 2020, shows that even with such devastatingly low population numbers, it may actually not be too late for the vaquitas. So yes, it is on the one hand very easy to look at this from a very despondent I think is probably the best term I would use point of view and think if there are nine or less left like what's the genetic viability of this species 
Um, but this research, and we'll put a link in the show notes, it's posted on the vivavakita.org website, shows that this this species has survived with such low genetic diversity and with such low population numbers for such a significant period of time that, in fact, if we could just deal with the big issue, <laughs> which is obviously not an easy thing to do because people have been trying to deal with it for decades now, um, the vaquita likely could could bounce back from from only having nine animals left. Gosh, it's so it I can't even process that. Just having nine animals left, it is species. So we obviously have to talk about vaquitas when we're talking about porpoises. And I think the biggest takeaway that I have whenever I think about the vaquita, aside from being very upset, is they are a cautionary tale. And we are about to jump into the the rest of the seven species of porpoises and a common thread that you will hear from us when we're giving our sort of brief introductions to what's known about them is that not a lot is known about them, but that their populations are small and threatened by bycatch. Unlike the harbor porpoise and the doll's porpoise in particular, yes, we don't know a lot about harbor porpoises and doll's porpoises, um, but they are not significantly impacted in any way, I would say, by uh, fishing practices in most of their geographic range, and their numbers are plentiful. Whereas with most of the rest of these species of porpoise, they're not that far away from the situation that the vaquita was in, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago. And so for me, the biggest takeaway I have whenever I hear about the vaquita is in our lifetime, we lost the Yangtze River dolphin. And not to mention countless other non-cetacean species, but we're just going to focus on cetaceans in this podcast. And the amount of worldwide support that the vaquitas have gotten and funding, like, I have no idea what the total amount of funding that the Save the Vaquita Project has had over the last even just five years. That gives me hope, but I think it's really important to take that hope and apply it to other species who are not that far away from the situation that the vaquita has found itself in, but that may be in a better position to make change that can help. Yeah. That's my soapbox. <laughs> I'm sorry for being a downer. Let's talk about another porpoise, Liz. <laughs> oh yeah, because this one's going to be super chipper. We should have left doll's porpoise for the end. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Okay, so next on our list is the narrow-ridged finless porpoise, and that's divided into two subspecies, the Yangtze finless porpoise and the East Asian finless porpoise, or the Sunamiri. Um, so these guys kind of look like a big gray piece of poo, um, <laughs> honestly. They have a very bulbous head and then no dorsal fin, hence the name finless. They have pectoral fins otherwise you know they wouldn't be able to move anywhere they don't have a dorsal <laughs> fin that's the point but that's the porpoise um so yeah they look literally they're just they're all gray they have when they're coming out of the water there's literally nothing they're just flat they're, they don't even have a dorsal ridge like a beluga so yeah they and then they just have eyes and a mouth like there's not a very pronounced beak either so they're just just a round tube porpoise. <laughs> with dorsal um, fins. <laughs> with dorsal fins and a tail. And a blowhole. And that's about all. Um, so they are about two meters long and weigh about 100 kilograms. So kind of like in the middle E for where we're looking at with porpoises. Um, and IUCN lists them as endangered. Yeah. So the Yangtze River subpopulation is critically endangered. Also, these narrow ridge finless porpoises prefer shallow coastal waters and can be found in the Taiwan Strait, north into the Yellow Sea, and into southern Japan. As the name suggests, the Yangtze finless porpoise is only found in the Yangtze River, as well as some associated lakes and estuaries. Um, again, bycatch is the biggest issue with these guys and as they these rivers if you've seen photos they're very turbid and these porpoises are very turbid looking mm. so it's also and they don't have a dorsal fin like even burmeisters 
uh, had at least a little something popping up. But they're also <laughs> very hard to find and study again. So we just don't know enough. And the bycatch, like our knowledge and the and the rate of bycatch are ones out uh, outspeeding the other one, and it's not the good one. So, mm-hmm. but a fun fact, actual fun fact, <laughs> is um, these porpoises are actually very active and can be seen to dart about uh, just about under the water surface changing direction quickly and very often they prefer to be either alone or in small groups um although there have been groups of up to 50 which have been sighted in chinese waters so that's fun 50 Mm. little gray tubes (laughs) swimming around all quicky quick uh so next up, we have a closely related species, which is the Indo-Pacific finless porpoise. And like the other finless porpoise, they don't have a dorsal fin, but they do have pectoral fins. Uh, and they are, as adults, sort of pale gray, almost uniform, a very rounded um, rostrum that looks remarkably similar to a beluga melon. Um, they have a very small little mouth. And when they're younger, they do have um, different different coloration they're usually darker when they're younger and then they get lighter gray although in the western subspecies of them they go the other way they start out very light creamy gray and then they get darker as they age oh very strange probably has something to do with like the coloration of like the color of the water and like what yeah what they're trying to camouflage from they are uh, a little bit smaller than the other finless porpoises that Lindsay spoke about. They're about 1.7 meters long and about 70 kilograms. They are designated as vulnerable um, by the IUCN. Uh, so the Indo-Pacific finless porpoises, they tend to prefer waters with a soft or sandy bottom. So they tend to be then in shallow coastal waters, including estuaries, bays, and mangrove swamps, which is fun. They're found from uh, the east China, the southern part of the East China Sea, west down to the Indo-Malay region. They're not found in the Philippines, but then they are found all the way through the Indian Ocean to the Persian Gulf. And a fun fact that's actually fun, uh, the calves of Indo-Pacific finless porpoises have been seen riding on the backs of their mom. They grip oh onto their God. dorsal ridge, and then they come out of the water when their mom breathes. Ah, and oh, so I can't even imagine. Cute. So cute. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. And last but certainly not least is the spectacled porpoise, which is, in my opinion, definitely the coolest looking Mm -hmm. porpoise, for sure. They are basically exactly half and half from a countershading coloration perspective. So running down the dorsal side, or sort of the... the Ventral. No. Thank uh, you. No. No. Lateral. Lateral? There we (laughs) go. terms running down the lateral side of each of their body basically cutting their dorsal and ventral sides in half uh their tops are black or dark gray but can be like full true black and their bellies or ventral sides are white they also as their name suggests well i guess if you think about it spectacle (laughs) they don't wear glasses we do not have porpoises just swimming around out there in the ocean wearing glasses (laughs) But they do have a very, very dark circle, similar to the vaquita, but because of the way that their color pattern works and their eye is right sort of in the middle of that defining line of dark and white coloration, they have white circle and then dark black circle around their eye. So it it looks, Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't look like they're wearing glasses, but you can see where they get the name from. It doesn't look like they're wearing glasses at all. No, it doesn't at all. Um, they start out that the dark dorsal side does start light gray when they're born, and then it progressively turns darker and darker and darker gray or black as they get older. But the other crazy cool thing about the species, aside from their coloration, which is beautiful and very distinct, is their dorsal fin. <laughs> males particularly this doesn't happen with females their their dorsal fins are bonkers <laughs> i don't even like really know how to describe an adult male spectacled porpoise's dorsal fin other than to say it's a huge mountain in the middle of their back yeah it like it is... just comes from nothing like it yeah it looks like stuck on <laughs> It's so ridiculous. It does not look like it belongs there. It It's not particularly tall. So it's not like what happens to um, a sexually mature male orca 
where it just kind of like sprouts and all of a sudden now it's six feet tall. It's just, it's it's giant. It's mm-hmm. like a sail. It's yeah. like somewhat <laughs> attached. A sail or a shovel head, because that's probably more accurate and true to size, to their back. Yeah. You have to look it up. Yeah. Listener, we're uh, an auditory medium, not a visual medium. <laughs> you, you just pause the podcast right now, look up male spectacled porpoise pictures yeah and enjoy because <laughs> it's just it's one of those things where i love in biology yeah. where you just see something and you're like what why it's quite rounded in some cases yeah, too is. yeah yeah they are real fun looking so that's a spectacled porpoise they are awesome they are also relatively large for a porpoise they can be between 2 and 2.25 meters long and about 100 to 115 kilograms or so and the iocn lists them as least concern although spectacled porpoises are seen most often around the southeastern coast of south america it is thought that their range extends sort of circumpolarly around the southern hemisphere and within temperate and cold sub-antarctic waters even they have been seen out in the open ocean all the way off the coast of tasmania and around a variety of offshore islands so they could be decently well spread but most sightings and i say most keep in mind this is a species that is very rarely seen so (laughs) (laughs) most is a relative term most sightings do happen uh, sort of as with almost all the purposes we've talked about in inshore coastal waters around the southern tip in this case of south america Interesting fact about the spectacle purpose is that there is some historic evidence that this species was once once hunted by the indigenous peoples of Tierra del Fuego, which is really cool when we actually anytime that we think about uh, indigenous relationships with cetaceans, there's some really, really fascinating history. And that is an introduction to porpoises. So not a whole lot else that is known about most of these species with the exception of harbors and dolls and maybe in a future episode we'll go deeper into some of the the research into harbors and dolls porpoises specifically but i thought a fun thing that we could do uh sometimes talking about porpoises is not super fun (laughs) is Lindsay and sarah Mm. and they didn't know this is coming so this is (laughs) if you were given unlimited funding but you had to devote that funding to studying something about porpoises what is it that you would like to know about any of these species it could be like about all of them or one specific but like what would you what would you you don't have to design your research project i'm not putting you on the spot that much (laughs) but if you were like to design your thesis question that you would that you would ask what would you want to know about porpoises i'm really interested now in this ridiculous dorsal fin yeah. And, um, so maybe something along there, but I don't know. I think the like the population and the cultural parts that is so unknown because it's such mm. a thing that we're so used to because we spend so much time around very highly cultured animals. So maybe something along those lines. But I also am fascinated when we don't know like the basic facts of c- cetaceans of like numbers. How do I d like even um tag and return or like. Just knowing, like, if they migrate, how often you see them, do they come back? The fidelity, fecundity, no. No, f- yeah, fidelity. 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 Yeah. Site fidelity. Site fidelity. Um, fidelity of the species, like, if they migrate, do they come back to the same spot, like, mm-hmm. the specific areas or even a wide range? All sorts of stuff like that. So I went c- kind of a similar direction, like, trying to figure out, like, where do these animals go? But I was like, well, if we have, if unlimited funding means unlimited funding, then I'm just going to pay like a lot of people mm. money to study porpoises. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's also a great way to get more people interested in them, which will help save them. Yeah. And then also they get money for studying porpoises rather than money for killing endangered species. Yes. Also true. So that's going to be me. Like, I really want to know. Like, do Burmeisters go all the way around South America, or are they just on the two coasts? Who knows? And then I guess the other thing that's in, that is, like, less known, too, is, like, how, other than just, like, they eat some kind of food, but, like, what, how do they interact with the rest of their ecosystem? Like, um, what is, who are their main predators? What's their main prey? Like, 
yeah, does it change seasonally? I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. I can't pick. Just I know. One. I know. Like their natural environment and the man-made environment. Just thinking about like going down like all of the kinds of ships and submarines and stuff that they would encounter. Yeah, totally. Like Burmeisters, just like all of that stuff that goes on down there. <laughs> yeah. So before we continue with the episode, we want to take a minute to tell you about how you can support our podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales. So one way that you can support our podcast and Whale Tales overall financially is to become a patron on patreon.com slash whaletales. For a dollar a month, you can become a porpoise supporter. For $5 a month, you can be a dolphin supporter. Or for $10 a month, you can be a whale supporter. Ooh. And each level comes with a variety of perks, including discounts on our merch, like our new Have a Whaley Great Day shirts and mugs. Other perks include personalized thank you postcards from the three of us, access to extended interviews or additional stories when we have guests on the podcast, and you can even, at one level, produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the episode. And we just want to take this time to thank all of our patrons that that we have right now. They're so amazing and they help us be able to do what we do. Thank you. Thank you. And if you aren't able or interested in supporting us financially, you can still help us out in other ways. You can leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcasting platform, or you can tell your other cetacean living friends about the podcast so that more people uh, can listen to the show. Hooray. And you can always send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Thank you so much. Do you all know what time it is? I do. I do. It's time for fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact. It's time for a fun, fun, fast flipper fact. Today's fun flipper fact is a fast one, but it was an interesting one. In researching for today's episode, looking at porpoises, I think because we we do just associate them with dolphins so much and we constantly, you know, like even in today's episode, we, we compare them to dolphins and you know, we, each of the three of us have been giving some variety of that, like, okay, so a porpoise has spade-shaped teeth and a dolphin has conical-shaped teeth for, like, a decade or mm-hmm. more of mm-hmm. our lives, that in my brain, you start to kind of make an association and an assumption that porpoises and dolphins must be closely related, not closest anymore, because obviously dolphins have all of these things in common and porpoises have these things in common. But a full study, which we will put in the social, in the, what are they called? Show notes. Show notes. <laughs> Thank you. A full study that we will put in the show notes that was written by Dr. McGowan and many associates. An article titled The Phylogenomic Resolution of the Cetacean Tree of Life Using Target Sequence Capture, which is a mouthful, but if you are a genetic enthusiast... This article is for you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) It was published in October of 2019, and it lists all of the, basically, like, the the tree and the divergent branches of all branches of cetaceans. And what I thought was really, really cool when I was researching for this episode was that, in fact, porpoises are not most closely related to dolphins on the cetacean family tree. Porpoises and monodontes, which are specifically just the beluga and narwhal, have a common ancestor before they diverged more close, more recently than dolphins did. Hmm. So dolphins, porpoises, and monodontes, narwhals and belugas, all do have a common ancestor that deviates them from... Not just baleen whales, but also other toothed whales, so mm-hmm. like beaked whales and sperm whales, um, which makes sense because yeah, you know, they all have teeth, teeth. <laughs> all have teeth. But yeah, I think I never put a ton of thought into it before. But if someone had asked me on the street, you know, are porpoises generally speaking more closely related to dolphins or belugas, I probably would have guessed dolphin. And in fact, that's not the case. So somewhere between eleven and nine million years ago. Porpoises, dolphins, and narwhals had a common ancestor that diverged away from whatever the common ancestor of all of the dolphins was. And then that common ancestor broke into porpoises, and then belugas and narwhals. And I think that is a fun flipper fact. Speaking of porpoises and dolphins, um, now it's time for a whale tale, but a porpoise tale. Yay! Um, So this story comes from one of our 
storytellers, Catherine, who's a whale watch naturalist out of Vancouver. Um, this is a story from 2016 from up north in Telegraph Cove with Dell's porpoises and some Pacific white-sided dolphins. Hello everyone tuning into Whale Tales. My name is Catherine Taylor and this story is also brought to you by George, my husband, and Roger McDonald and lovely people at Whale Tales. I was asked to talk about dolls' purposes and to share a story where I had a great experience with those little critters. So porpoises are way too often overlooked in the West Coast lexicon of wildlife. They are not large, not dramatic, and for the most part, not very charismatic. I am here to prove this a little bit wrong. So for porpoises, there are harbor porpoises. They are little wallflowers. They're the shy guys of the cetacean world. I have been lucky sometimes when they are surprisingly watchable, but really they have no interest in anything than other porpoises. And it is, a, it is a shame because they are cute and have earned the nickname of puffing pigs. How adorable. I have seen them uh, right off Vancouver and English Bay amongst those deep sea tankers and off Lighthouse Park. If you just park yourself and wait, it might be a while, you might see them. However, this story is not about harbor porpoises. This story is about the doll's porpoises with guest stars, the Pacific white-sided dolphin, which I, I will now call legs because of the Latin name. Oh, I'm sorry if I cannot pronounce this. Lagenerbrancus obliquidens. There, I did it. I'll tell you about the legs first, the Pacific white-sided dolphins. These are the ones that initially raised outcry because of them being caught in drift nets. Not on purpose, of course, but accidentally caught in the nets for squid, tuna, and other commercial fish. Fortunately, a ban on drift nets reduced this bycatch problem. However, dolphin bycatch of every regionally species remains a huge problem in salmon and tuna fisheries. This species can be seen in groups from roughly 10 to 100, though some larger groups that number up to 1,000 have been recently and well documented. Stay tuned. Like many other dolphin species, these guys can be interested in human swimmers and in boats. Many species of dolphins, including uh, multiple subspecies of orca, dolphin, and even pinnipeds, may engage in a behavior called bow riding. I've personally seen it in northern and southern red and orca, Big Zorka, Stellar, and California Sealands, Gray Seals, Pacific White-Sided Dolphins, Bottlenose, and Dolls Porpoises. Gray Whales are another story. Stay tuned. Bow riding is a behavior that essentially uses the waves out of, of a vessel at 7 knots to about 15 knots to use as a push to leap and play. This has been documented in many cetacean and pinnipede species, uh, not just those native to the Canadian West Coast, but in pretty much all waters. The story I choose to share with the Whale Tales podcast and you regards another drift net casualty, the doll's porpoises. Recently, this species has experienced a sharp decline in population due to Japanese consumers looking for an alternative to the declining availability of other whale meats. Despite this alternative, and I use that in quotes, this alternative cetacean meat, up to including porpoise, is loaded with high PCB and mercury levels. They are a protected species in Canadian and most other nations, and they weigh roughly up to 440 pounds and 7 to 8 feet in length. They look really thick, fat, and pudgy, and cute, and they really are cute. What looks like chunky fat is actually lots of muscle, as the overlying blubber is thinner than one might expect for a cold water species. This muscle is what puts one of the smaller cetaceans right up into the race car category. Over short distances, they are speedsters up to 34 miles per hour. That's about 55 kilometers per hour. They're actually sometimes mistaken for orca by silly people because of their black and white coloring. Just because it's black and white doesn't mean it's a killer whale. There have been more than a few times that I've been alerted to the presence of orca. When I went to the location, there's dull's porpoises foraging for herring, hake, squid, or other little schooling fish. They are in fact food 
for Big's Orca, once called Transients, because of the doll's porpoise speediness, they are relatively a small portion of the Big's Orca diet. Adding to the doll's porpoise mystique, there's evidence through DNA sequences and photography of crossbreeds between dolls and harbor porpoises. Okay, children, enough science time. On to the meat of things. This story, like many of mine, takes place in the lovely Broughton Arch- Archipelago located off the northwest side, sorry, northeast side of Vancouver Island. Myself and my husband, George, were visiting friends in Telegraph Cove, including our dear friend, Roger McDonnell, who was kind enough to take us out on his crimson-hauled amazeballs boat, the Gizmo. He features large in this whale tale. So we were spending a couple days up there camping in the RV park with our little tent amongst the RV giants. We enjoy bringing down the style of the place. A little bit more down rent with our little two-person tent among the RV palaces. Whilst it was there, this had the major advantage of being close to Stubbs Island Whale Watching, once the premier and best location to whale watch on the the BC coast. It has been since very sadly forced to close. Go to Campbell River. I still miss that place. However, this camp location does have the advantage of being close to the marine. Should anything interesting pop up, then we can bounce out to view responsibly relatively fast. On this particular occasion, we have been lucky enough to have seen northern and resonant Biggs orcas, humpbacks, dolls porpoise, seals, and sea lions. Additionally, during our stay, roughly 350 legs, the Pacific white-sided dolphins I aforementioned, they were rampaging up and down the area in a behavior called squalling. They were housing humpbacks, and they were with the northern resident orca, and generally being pretty nuts, but soft. This story is ultimately about dolls' porpoises. They appear only briefly, but they were pretty badass. On our way back to Telegraph Cove, this squall of Pacific white-sided dolphins decide that once again, they're going to bow ride and play in Gizmo's wake. We were just setting off and doing a paltry three knots when they came and started hanging out off the boat. And they were giving us rather expected looks like, come on, let's go. Champion at the aquatic pick, so to speak. I was at the wheel and a little hesitant to bring the speed up as I was very well acquainted with safe conduct with wildlife such as cetaceans. But clearly they were waiting for the go signal, so I brought it very slowly to hover around 10 knots. And those legs were loving it. Having a great time jockeying for space, moving up around each other, playing off the bow wave and in the wake. And I could hear Roger yelling, I love this! I love this! He was filming and shooting video and just enjoying the sight with George on the bow. This went on for a bit. Here enters the doll's porpoises, our stars. Roughly 30 of them showed up and showed the legs how bow riding was really done. Essentially bullying them out of what I assume was the best positions to get that push from the bow wave. So for about 15 minutes, as we cruised back to harbor, the dolls and the legs were competing for a spot to play with the boat wakes. Amazing. As we came closer to the harbor and I dropped off speed to enter, they broke off only to dart towards the Luqua, which was just setting out on a sunset wildlife cruise. I miss Luqua too, but you can go see it and go on a ride in Campbell River. We actually had to wait while the remaining legs and some northern residents got out of the way because they were in our way to go into the harbor, but sometimes cetaceans can be inconsiderate. As we entered the marina, we saw the dolphins split to annoy the residents and to annoy the Luqua and the dolls just to rampage around with a good chunk of them going over to play with the Luqua. And so amongst the setting sun, we entered the little marina. And it is wonderful how, how one of the tiniest cetaceans takes on the bigger boys and just rules. Those black and white minis are always a treat, should you be lucky enough to encounter them. Oh, that's awesome. You can read some more of Catherine's stories on our website, as well as over 50 porpoise stories. Although I will warn you, because of the way that we tag our stories, some more, a lot of those are about harbor porpoises being eaten. But... <laughs> yeah it's true. so um don't be surprised <laughs> just be aware 
Um, but we do have some incredible photos of dolls porpoises on there as well. So check those out. Before we leave you for this month, we wanted to share some thoughts about how you can help or a few ways that you can help support porpoises all over the world and also um, contribute to the health and safety of the our oceans in general. Um, and as you might have noticed, the leading threat for almost all porpoises is um, through bycatch or in some cases targeted fishing. And so we wanted to talk about uh, how you as a consumer can have incredible purchasing power, especially when it comes to seafood. People don't fish for things that they can't sell. So if there's no market for certain seafood, they won't go fishing for them. And that means that you as a consumer have a lot of power. I don't know if you know this, but fishing is actually really dangerous. It's dangerous. It's hard work. And yeah, nobody's going to do it if there's no market for it. So um, both like not supporting fisheries that you don't agree with their practices from an environmental or ethical perspective, um, like both not supporting those and then also actively supporting ones that you do believe in um, mm -hmm. can really uh, make a big difference. And I think the other thing too is just really try like thinking about not just from a fisheries perspective, but from a like supply chain and like like focusing on supporting a local to you fishery if that's an option, because um, then you you know in lots of cases you can buy basically directly from the people out fishing or like yeah reduce a lot of the intermediate steps which add which can add both like packaging shipping costs refrigeration costs and just more money into you know various levels of. Um, of infrastructure whereas if you are buying more locally then you're supporting like the actual people who are out fishing and i think we it's certainly easy for the three of us to take this for granted because we live coastally and i certainly have a lot of family actually all of us have family that live inland where this is harder we absolutely acknowledge and, and recognize that it is it is harder but not impossible to yeah. support sustainable seafood practices when you live inland one of the best things that you can do and I know that my parents do because <laughs> they are always so proud to tell me is just talking to your grocery store mm -hmm. about you know asking those questions because in some cases you know in some town you know wanting to speak to the manager of the the seafood counter at your local grocery store they might have never been asked the question before yeah. like hey where does this come from and even just starting that dialogue and getting, you know, like, like Sarah said, the supply chain to start thinking about where seafood is coming from and, hey, people actually care about this. Um, and starting to sort of like organize within your own social group, whether you're, you're coastal or inland, it can really start to make a difference. And then when it comes to the species of purposes that we've listed today that are more threatened or endangered and you know maybe you specifically either don't have access to supporting seafood from that particular location because these are sometimes you know all over the world locations that we're talking about with these purposes one of the other big things to to think about is there are lots of organizations, including our friends at the Porpoise Conservation Society, who are trying to do this work locally in the areas where this illegal fishing is taking place who are trying to do the work of finding other economic opportunities for the people who whose livelihoods do depend right now on these illegal fishing fisheries so though you may not be able to support the fishery per se or a sustainable fishery per se in the areas that are affecting some of these vulnerable porpoise species, you can support the work of nonprofit organizations and researchers who are trying to solve that economic problem. So our friends at the Porpoise Conservation Society have a lot of links about this that we can link to as well. Um, and ultimately what it comes down to is just funding research, mm -hmm. if this matters to you, funding research and conservation efforts um, that are looking at the the whole economic picture mm -hmm. because we understand again it comes down to that purchasing power and that power that consumers have that if people somewhere are still going to buy that illegal thing we well, ultimately what we have to do is find another way for those people to make money um so that they don't want to go out and use the types of nets that can ultimately kill purposes that about brings us to the end of our show except Nicole has some 
Not really breaking news. <laughs> Not breaking. Um, this is going to be my last episode for at least a month, maybe more. I am having another baby, a Yay. human one. Go figure. <laughs> Are you sure? I am not. Is that a scan? I checked? Um, But in the next two weeks, so I'm actually very, that's why it's not so breaking for for people who see me, (laughs) but since most of you just listen to my voice, um, in the next two weeks, I am due with my second and final child. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Lindsay and Sarah have graciously understood that I am going to need to take a bit of a step back from the podcast to readjust to being a new mom again, and in particular being a mom of two instead of just a mom of one. I am so, so excited. I can't wait to meet my new little one. I can't wait for my son James to meet his baby brother, and I hope to be able to be back with the podcast sooner rather than later. But I know that Lindsay and Sarah have some really exciting things planned for the next month or so that I may need to take a break. Um, and you will all be in very good hands. I'm not going to sing Fun Flipper Fact. Yeah, I'm sorry. We will not sing, but we have pre-recorded, not Nicole singing, but we have pre-recorded at least one episode. So uh, you're not you're not out of Nicole content for too Forever. long. Yeah. <laughs> don't no, worry. And I will be I will be sharing um I don't do the the Whale Hill social media. That is Lindsay's domain, but I will be sharing pictures with Lindsay to share on social media of uh both of my boys dressed in all the whale tails merch because I love it. <laughs> so you will get an update once once the new little one joins the pod. Aww. 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 Wow. That was cheesy. <laughs> no, that's me. That's what I do. Anyways, we would really love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode, of course. So please visit our website at whale-tales.org where you can find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is not answering her Twitter right no, now. No, it's true. <laughs> uh, you can also head to our website to subscribe to the podcast, check out our merch that we mentioned, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,000 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you have seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library. So please click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, or email us a voice memo like Catherine and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. Lindsay and I will be back with a special guest on the last Wednesday of next month with another episode. Thank you so much, everyone. I will miss you and I hope to be back soon. In the meantime, have a really great day.